Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about age, attitude, image, and our health. My first guest is Dr. Luann Brizendine, who authored the book, The Upgrade, How the Female Brain Gets Stronger and Better in Midlife and Beyond. Dr. Brizendine completed her degree in neurobiology at UC Berkeley, graduated from Yale School of Medicine, and did her internship and residency at Harvard Medical School. She has also served the faculties of both Harvard and UCSF, that's University of California at San Francisco, where she founded the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic at UCSF. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The Female Brain and its follow-up, The Male Brain. Luann, thanks for joining me on the show today. Oh, so kind of you to have me, and I'm really looking forward to talking with your audience about this topic because we, we women and men need to have the best second half of life we can have. I agree. Let's talk about how the upgrade differs from what you call the transition, because I'm all in for an upgrade. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. So, you know, I, I changed the words because the word menopause and perimenopause are really kind of, they're kind of fossil words, as I say, but they're used by the medical profession to be a very specific, you know, kind of diagnosis of a deficit. And it's a, it's a medical uh, diagnosis. Whereas, you know, our, the time of life from age like 40 to 60, let's say, is, is not a medical diagnosis. We are the, the whole woman, the complete parts. If you look at the pie chart of who we are, like, yes, a piece of it is going through the time when our ovaries retire our estrogen goes down, et cetera, et cetera. But we're, that's not all of us. So it, I talk about it as the transition, meaning AKA perimenopause, but it's much more than that. It's all the parts of our entire being that goes through that stage of life between age 40 and 50. And then, and 50 and above is the upgrade after we're free from the periods and the rock and roll of the ups and downs of waves of hormones that, that soak our brain <laughs> every <laughs> month and we are free at last. Well, this idea of the upgrade of the second half of life being incredibly fertile in a different way. Oh, very much so, because let's talk about the difference between, let's say, the years of our menstrual cycle, the fertility years, when it's the first day, remember, first day of bleeding is called day one of the cycle. And then, you know, for that first week and into up before ovulation, we're getting increases, increases, increases in estrogen. And that's marinating your brain in all of this estrogen. It's causing all kinds of connections in the brain. And um, then, though, at ovulation, when the progesterone starts up, it then tears down all of those connections. So it's almost like you're walking along a path 
really close to the tide line. And it's washing those connections away and then rebuilding them and washing them away and rebuilding them. But when you get to the upgrade to the time after this, the hormones in the fertility menstrual cycle are gone, you're walking up on a path that's higher up on the hill where you feel it's more stable. You're not having everything built and washed away every month. You can just, you have more clarity, more stability, more focus to, to see further and, you know, have a new purpose in your life where there's a lot more stability. So that's, that, that in a nutshell is what the book's about. I'll just say amen to that because I have also found that this period, this upgrade period that you describe is interesting in that there is more available empathy and compassion and less emotionality around it. Absolutely. Because remember, you know, I think what we women who have passed through this phase of the transition and into the upgrade realize is that this type, the type of emotionality, I mean, all, okay, so the women, most women, like 90% of women remember what kind of PMS was like or know what that's like, which is that last day or two before bleeding starts. That's the end of the end of the menstrual cycle when the progesterone is like crashing down, the hormones are like disappearing like mad and your brain is is trying to scramble to readjust. And I in my clinic, the women's mood and hormone clinic that I founded at UCSF, we we call it the crying over dog food commercial. <laughs> yes. Um, see, I mean, as soon as you say it, women who know that feeling, like all of a sudden it's boo-hoo-hoo about something that you, you know, it, things just, that just hit that emotionality button that's, that don't make any sense at all, but it's just like, it's just like there. Or the flip side of that is like something your partner that does that, you know, maybe it annoys you a little bit, dur- you know, during the rest of the month, but on those days, Whatever that thing is, they're, they're leaving their stuff around, they're leaving whatever in the mess, kitchen in a mess, whatever it is that they're doing, it feels like fingernails on a chalkboard and just like irritates the <laughs> heck out of you. You're just ready to strangle them. Yep, you know, it's like, yep, yep. Right? Yeah. All of a sudden, so, so your emotionality, both in the irritability range and in the tearful emotional range, is all over the map. And so when that's gone, oh my God, I mean, it's freedom. Yes, it is very liberating. And I think that that leads to the next freedom uh, moment, which is this ability to just sort of speak one's truth, less worried about what others think and say. Yes. And so, you know, I talked about that. Now, let's think about it for a minute. I call it the people pleasing. Now, you know, (laughs) a lot of women, right? We women are encouraged to be people pleasers. And it has a lot to do with, and remember, our whole motivation as women in our biological world, remember, biology is destiny unless you know what it's doing to you. So let's talk about what it's doing to you so you can be like aware, right? So be aware. The biology is destiny unless you know what it's doing to you. So let's let's get your, your listeners an upgrade on what that's about. You know, for the fertility cycle, you know, the two or three days before ovulation is when our estrogen's the highest, our testosterone's the highest, and we, Mother Nature made it so those are the days we're going to be, we're going to be looking for the best sperm, Lisa. We're looking for the best sperm is really what the biology yeah, is yeah. doing. And women, women are, all the studies show women sway their hips a bit more during those few days. We talk in a slightly higher voice. We may put a little more makeup and, you know, wear high heels and mini skirts, whatever it is that we do that's like a little bit more sexy. We are doing the, what's called the come hither dance. Yes. And the biology under the hood, if you look at the hood, what it's doing is like, 
Mother Nature means you're supposed to be, those are the days you're looking for the best sperm. You're looking, you're basically, you're looking, you're looking you're to looking get for, some. You're looking to get some, <laughs> baby. You're looking to get some. And so, um, and that's, that's, of course, there's nothing wrong with it. That. That's just what's going on. But it's good to, it's good to know that. So, and, and the reason the people pleasing issue comes about is that, you know, in your fertility years, you you're looking for a mate, the best sperm. You're looking for the father of your children, whatever. You know, your, your biology is pushing you in that direction. And people-pleasing or not causing conflict, being amenable, then going along with the flow, wherever it is, you know, you don't want to do anything that will inhibit your ah, possibility yeah. of finding, finding a mate. I get it. So the people pleasing is is not so much about the the role of being the catering truck, but really about being the desired vixen. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's it's like a come hither. It's like yes. you know, it's like pheromones. It's pheromones. It's like you know, it's like you're putting out your pheromones there, girl. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that at any nothing age. Nothing wrong with I, that, but you should know the biology is destiny unless you know what it's doing to you. And as long as you know what it's doing to you, you kind of go like, oh yeah, got that, know that one, and yeah, that's that is what I'm doing, and I'm going to be the best at it as I can. I'm going to find the best sperm. You know, that's what we do. Well, let's talk a little bit about about that drive uh, during the upgrade because there can be a precipitous fall in our sexual desire where we don't know where that part of us has gone, but there's hope. There is hope. And, the, you know, the thing is, it's like society, once you're finished with the procreation stage, you've got the whole second half of your life because, I mean, in 1900, okay, at least in, ni- the age, in 1900, the, the average age of death for a woman was 40, 49 years old. Oh, God, I'd be done. Mm. And, of course, that has a lot to do with, you know, childhood, you know, mortality, a whole lot of other things when you get the average age is 49. But a lot of women, you know, had 18 pregnancies and whatever. You know, there was – there was anyway, women didn't have the second life like – the second half like we have now, you know. So just to, just to be clear about that. So now we have a, a whole – we're not – the um, we're not looking for the best sperm. We have a whole nother stage of life where we can, you know, have give back to or to society, to our communities, to our families, to ourselves. And this issue of being able to stand firmer and speak your own peace, because, you know, you're not doing this fertility dance of like having to suppress your own voice to be a people pleaser and not to offend anybody so that you don't find the right mate. You know, all that stuff is over, O-V-E-R, over. You yes. are in a new phase. And so, yeah, you're, you're, you're not out there. You're, you're sec- the highest libido, the highest sex drive for a woman in terms of her lifespan is age 19. No, come yeah. on. The highest sex drive. Think about when you're 19. I mean, you basically, you were I very- I don't know what to do with you know, it at 19. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, right. You're overall, you're all over the map. But, you know, in the in the days before, you know, when in the days before we live like we do now, where a woman's, you know, building her career, building her education, building her, you know, all those kinds of things that we're doing. It used to be that you're, you know, you had your first pregnancy usually at age 17 or 16, and you had, you know, about 18 pregnancies. You know, your highest libido was at 19. So, anyway, that's not what we're doing now. But what still, a waste! Exactly. <laughs> our, our still our highest libido at, is at 19, and um, you know, the highest for a male is about the same age too, 19. And then there's there's doesn't start to fall off. There starts to fall off at about age 30, 32. Their testosterone starts to go down a little bit, but their sex drive and their testosterone does not fall off a cliff at age 50 like ours does. It continues to go down, 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 down until, 
you know, in the 90s, but it still is um, adequate to perform sexual function and have libido. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> remember, so the sperm, so females at, at birth are given about, a, we're given about a million eggs. And actually, they just start to die off. All, all, they, they're, half of them are gone down to 500,000 by the time we even start our periods. So they're kind of dying off all along. And then by the time we hit 50, they're all gone. But for males, sperm is made um, all day, every day, 24-7 until the end of life. So until the guy hits the grave, he basically is making sperm that could, could inseminate somebody. No wonder they are such a valuable commodity at the retirement home. You know, like a vertical, exactly. a vertical male in every way, you know, exactly a vertical male every way. So, you know, that's a whole nother. And then they, you know, the thing is the sex drive that's matched males on average have three times a sex drive of an, what's called an age matched female all along in their life. So at age 30, males have three times the sex drive as a 30-year-old woman. I mean, they're all, I, I've seen couples where it's the opposite, where she has a lot more than he does. But that, that's, that's, but the that's unab- another show. That's another show. <laughs> but, then, but what happens at 50, you know, once, the female, once, our, once our eggs are gone and our follicles are gone, 90% of the testosterone made in the female body is made in the ovaries, in the follicle. And the, once those are gone, that drops down dramatically. And then your adrenal glands take over and make most of your testosterone, but never never as much as you had from your ovaries. So the age match at, say, 50, 55 of male to female is quite off. You know, the, the male may have even up to 10 times the libido that the female has. So that's sometimes why we give, uh, with the hormone replacement therapy, we also give uh, testosterone to women uh, in small amounts or DHEA, another androgen that oh, increases sex but- drive. It increases sex drive if there's a – it's usually the woman comes because there's such a mismatch and she's just not – she's not feeling it and he's still like, like hey, knock, knock, who's there? Well, come on, let's, let's get it on here. <laughs> let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk about uh, some of the new medications and supplements that are available to us to help us live that really ripe, juicy upgrade period of our lives. To learn more about my guest today, Dr. Luann Brizendine, please visit LuannBrizendine.com. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. Luann, on Facebook, Dr. Luann Brizendine, and on Instagram, guess what? Luann Brizendine. We're talking about her book, The Upgrade, How the Female Brain Gets Stronger and Better in Midlife and Beyond. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Luann Brizendine. We're talking about age, attitude, image, and our health. Let's get back to it. So Luann, you were talking about the precipitous drop in women's sex drive after the childbearing years, but we also talked about all not being lost and the availability of hormone therapy and other supplementations that might be able to put a little va-va-voom back into our bedrooms. (laughs) 
Oh, yes. You know, so let's just get down to, to the basics in terms of what the data is, the, evid- the evidence-based data that people in the, you know, in sex research look at, because there's, you know, there's a lot of um, hormone replacement therapy that um, women have available to them now, and much more than they had even a few years ago. In the last three or four years, doctors are, you know, upgrading their uh, knowledge base on this as well. And women are going for some combination of either natural uh, combinations or hormones, depending on what, what kind of symptoms you're having. But a lot of women, they come, let's go, let's stick with the libido for a minute, because a lot of women are very, very frustrated because their libido is so low and their partners, their male partners is still pretty high. And there ends up being a lot of marital conflict or a couple's <laughs> conflict over that issue. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always a little bit like the guy, you know, typically the guy's always wanting more than, than she wants anyway. But as long as the male and his like, 40s or 50s is getting it two or three times a week. He's pretty happy with that. You know, that's good. And then it hits this stage where the female is just not, it's even, there's something called touch aversion. Lisa, have you ever heard of touch aversion? I have heard of touch aversion. And it's true. It is, it's a real thing where you just don't want to be pawed as much. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly like, get away from me. <laughs> get away from me with that thing, with that thing, you know? And <laughs> we, 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 we joke about that in my clinic all the time. It's like, get away from me with that thing. You know, so the studies show that if you give women a little bit of testosterone along with their estrogen, so it has to be kind of a little combination of the estrogen and testosterone because you don't want to have a, you don't want to have a libido with a dry vagina. Estrogen gives your vagina the, the lubrication. God forbid. I mean, no, don't no. have a lot of, don't, you don't want libido with a dry vagina. That would not be good. You would be a very miserable woman. Anyway, so giving a little bit of estrogen plus testosterone is what we usually do and we try to get the dosage of the testosterone in the right amount for the woman because remember in the United States we still don't have uh, women's health uh, the FDA and the women's health has just dropped the ball on that one completely in in every way honey every way every way (laughs) Europe and Canada has a lot more available that's in the female dosage range but in America we have to basically go to compounding pharmacies to get the male testosterone made into a smaller dose for females. I can tell you one, one of the patients that came to my clinic, she, uh, the compounding pharmacy made a mistake and gave her the male dose. And she called me a couple of weeks later. She says, Dr. Brisenine, Dr. Brisenine, you know, um, you know, I'm a school teacher and I'm embarrassed to, to say this, but I, in between classes, I'm, I'm having to go into the ladies room and kind of uh, relieve myself. Wow. She says, you know, I'm that good, I'm, huh? She says, she says, yeah, she says, now I know what it feels like to be a 19 year old boy. She said, she said, I don't know. She said, do you think this stuff is too high? And then we found out what the mistake was. We put her in the way. We got a good laugh of that. She says, and besides, my orgasm comes so fast. It's like, it's not even, it's not even like, it's not as, as long, as juicy as it used to be. Is there something wrong? So, yeah, testosterone can make women's orgasm come, come really fast. And you, you want a lot lot more sex than is, is reasonable to have during your day. At any rate, just note just to little, self. No, note Ladies to self. listening, just put Ladies, that. <laughs> Put a pin in that. Self, like, no to self, no to self. So, yeah. So, what I suggest is that women type, let's say that you're scheduling your sex for like, let's say Saturday morning or whatever, and you can, women can put their little bit of testosterone on like Friday night or like on Saturday morning. So, you can just, you can use it if you can use it, you know, two or three hours before sex because it gives you a, a vaginal like warm flush. You kind of feel a little bit. So, what it does, it kind of takes that touch aversion away. It makes you a little bit more interested, et cetera, et cetera. So, we try to give that back to women at this phase of life if they, you know, if it's if it's something that they want and it's causing a lot of um, couples distress, shall we say. So there you have it. That's in a nutshell what we what we do for women at this stage in the libido department. And what about in the the other brain department? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the rest of our brain department. So, you know, one, one of the nice things is, you know, the, the up and down of the mental cycle and stuff can also, choose, you know, kind of your focus and your emotions can be dragged up and down, up and down as the hormones go. But the nice thing, if you are on hormone replacement therapy, what we do is we give it at a cons- constant level. You know, we don't change it up and down like you're doing in the mental cycle. So you can be steady, 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 Eddie every day. Or if you're going to go with no hormone replacement therapy, which also a lot of women do, and that's just fine as well, you'll go back, you'll go down to a steady, very, very low level of the estrogen. Um, The women that have a very strong history of osteoporosis, you know, the bone, bone, or if you have it in your family or you have it yourself, because a lot of women, you should all get like a DEXA scan to see your bone density at the age, probably, you probably shouldn't wait till 50. You should probably do it at 45 just so that you know. Uh, typically, they say it's kind of like doctors know it's like thin, thin white women are the ones who tend to have osteoporosis in starting in their 40s. And if you've got that, um, that's, that's a good signal that you might want to seriously consider estrogen because it builds strong bones and it keeps your bones strong and keeps you from having broken bones. So that category is um, something women may not, may not be thinking about, but I'd like your audience to kind of know about that because we want to keep you um, your bones healthy and strong because healthy bones make healthy muscles. And the other thing, you know, the, when I was doing all the research for this book, I found that women at the age, they did a big study on 80-year-old women, Lisa, and the cognition. And those who had the highest level of cognition also had the strongest leg strength. Aha. So is this one of the body hacks for the mind? Yeah. So in the chapter called Body Hacks for the chapter called Body Hacks for the Mind, that you should know that keeping your muscles strong will keep your brain strong. So I like to joke, one of the biggest muscles in the female body is the is the glute muscle, the butt, the butt muscle. So <laughs> yes. that's the squeezing, you know, squeezing your butt as many times, just doing butt squeezes all day is really, really healthy for your brain. I I put that little tip on a TikTok and it's very it's been a very popular TikTok video that I put on it's about thirty seconds and people people tend to like that. It's kind of having a, a good run on TikTok right now. Oh yeah. So squeeze that booty. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Squeeze that booty. Plus, that'll help your vaginal health and your, re- your rectal health and your pelvic health and you know all that stuff. But actually, it's very good for your brain. Your butt, your butt. This thing, your butt's good for your brain. I do it brushing your teeth while you're standing, making your coffee while you're, I don't know, in line at the grocery store. You're sitting in your car or at your computer, just like you know, put your little timer on your watch to you know go off every hour and do 20 butt squeezes when it goes off. It'll it'll be very helpful to your brain. Oh gosh, best tip of the day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you'll look good in your in your jeans. I know, Lisa. That's a whole new thing for booty call. Booty call. Yes, booty call. <laughs> booty call for the upgraders. You know, that's right for the upgraders. Exactly <laughs> for all of us upgraders. So let's talk a little bit about SSRIs because um, that is one of the things that I read about in the book. That there's some new research on not only hormone therapy but what antidepressants can do. So. Um, what we do also, Lisa, for so it was an interesting discovery that was made back, I think, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. They're doing a research study on men with prostate cancer, actually. And because when men have prostate cancer, they give them this, this drug, they basically give them a hormone blocking drug that blocks all the men's hormones. His huh. blocks all of his testosterone, his testosterone, blocking his testosterone. And that also blocks his estrogen, too, blocks all of that. Because remember, men, men have some estrogen, too. And what they found is that. The, that blocker was giving all these guys horrible hot flashes. They were, couldn't sleep in. They were having night sweats. They were sweating all the time. 
hot flashes everywhere, just like with women. And so, oh, but nice. it's, it's, I know at the same time what they were doing, they didn't know what to do about that. But a lot of these men were also getting pretty depressed. Their mood was really going well, down. They're getting anxious and depressed, of course. I mean, of course. hello, welcome to the perimenopause and menopause, guys. Hello, guys. This is, this is like, take, anyway. They <laughs> welcome were, they to were, our world. world. our world. So they were using this drug for the de- for the depression and the mood stuff with these guys called Paxil or paroxetine. It's an SSRI. And then they found that the guys that were getting that weren't getting hot flashes. No. That's how they discovered that the SSRIs also block hot flashes. It was discovered in men, Lisa. So anyway, dot, 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 a few years later, someone decided, well, let's see if the SSRIs work for the women who cannot, you know, the women with the breast cancer gene and stuff that can't take estrogen. Let's see if it works for them to help them with their hot flashes. So in 70% of women with hot flashes, it does help to some degree, not 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 completely. The best thing for hot flashes is estrogen. It will take your hot flashes away probably within about, often about a week once you get the dosage Amazing. right. Amazing. And what about so, safety? I want, to have, I want to go back to this safety thing because you had mentioned about those who are prone to osteoporosis might need a different protocol but in general has the hormone replacement therapy had enough research to be used with minimal risk at this point yeah so remember 20 years as as a matter of fact this is the 20th anniversary of the big study called the whi the women's health initiative that took a whole bunch of women put half of them on placebo, half of them on, you know, hormone replacement therapy back in the 90s. And they didn't start it, though, Lisa, until the women were 63 or 64 years old. Uh And there ended up being more smokers in the group that got estrogen and more women even, they didn't even screen out in those days the women with the breast cancer gene. Oh, so it was a mess. The study was a was a disaster. So they've gone back to reanalyze all the data and whatever. And now they found that there actually was no difference. They made a mistake and the media ran with it. And, you know, we know what happened. It's set. It set estrogen therapy, hormone therapy back in research in women for 20 years. So there's actually now only only 20 percent of doctors primary care doctors, only 20% say that they feel like they got any training at all in hormone replacement for women. And even OBGYNs, the majority of OBGYNs even say they only maybe got one or two lectures on hormone replacement therapy during their residency. And they don't even know, they don't feel, they don't feel. So when you think you go to your OBGYN and that will help you with the hormone replacement therapy, they may have had no training in it. Wow. Very interesting. That I did not know. I mean, the doctors generally offer it very freely, but that doesn't mean that they know what they're doing when they offer it. No, it's so it's very frustrating because, you know, not not one size fits all, especially in hormone replacement therapy for women. And most women that, that come to our clinic, you know, they mean it takes I tell them, look, it's gonna probably it may take us up to we might get it right the first try. That would be great. But, you know, it may take us six months to, to mess around and find out the right combination of the estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. We gotta, we have to find out what works the best for you. Yeah. So, you know, most doctors are just, you know, they're too busy. They just want, they want one shot and then you're out the door. They don't want to kind of, you know, be have to mess with you for that long a period of time. So, but we, we women have to, you know, if, if take... Take another woman with you who's already been through it, you know, and take, take her with you to your appointment. It's really important because it's a very, this is an area where 
You need a doctor who will listen. And remember, OBGYNs are mostly procedure oriented. They do they do surgeries for cancers, and you know they do they do all D- kinds of deliver things babies. With the uterus. They deliver <laughs> and they do deliver babies. And most of their malpractice insurance has to do with high risk pregnancies and things. And so you don't it, the hormone therapy for them is just like it's like a ho hum. Oh well, you know it's not it's not their main business really. Uh, I think that you hit the nail on the head with that. And like what we need are the hormone tweakers. <laughs> Yeah, and so you know that because so, I trained, I trained as a psychiatrist and a neurobiologist. You know, so I trained with the brain in the brain, and I the, at UCSF they joke that oh, if it's above the neck, go to Luann. If it's below the waist, you know, you go to your OBGYN. So they, and the OBGYNs are very happy, say like oh, well, you got to go over to Luann. Go, go over to Luann. Yeah, no, this is a this is a you know because the SSRIs they don't you know they know that most doctors know how to use an SSRI like in just kind of one shot or maybe maybe one adjustment. Then once you get beyond that, they don't know what to do if something isn't working for you. So that's why it's worthwhile to go to in any field, you know, that you have something, try to find an expert in that field because they, the regular doctors of course may know what to do with the first shot and you may get, you may get lucky that it works, but yeah, if you need other tweaking, continue. And you know, the issue of hot flashes, some women have hot flashes for up to 15 to 20 years. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, you know what I'm talking about, Lisa. I'm one of those, yeah. And, yeah. and, and there's the maca. I know we could talk about maca if you want. Does maca help? Because we have in you know that we have a whole group that does kind of more of a uh, the, the the naturalist um, approaches works. to this. Yeah. So there's different things, and I mean I'm not an expert in those kinds of things, but there's there's a whole you know bio nutritional things and bio in the functional medicine world. There are other things that work, like other compounds, for example, maca is one of them, and you know they've. Uh, you know, in the old days, we used to use the primrose and the black cohosh, which have been actually placebo-controlled studies have shown that they do not work. So there are some things in that area that, that are very clearly not working, but there are some things that do. I would say to anybody who's listening that this feels like it struck a nerve, that at a minimum, you should get the book, The Upgrade, How the Female Brain Gets Stronger and Better in Midlife and Beyond. And to, to, to learn more, research, if you can't get to see Luann, research a doctor in your area that specializes in this, because who wants to needlessly suffer? You know, I think it just comes down to that. Hey, Lisa, we get enough suffering in life without this stuff. You exactly. Know, we, we, we women need to be at our best at all times because we have a lot of people depending on us. Yeah, we do. Luann, we're out of time, but I want to send our listeners over to your website. To learn more, please visit LuannBrizendine.com on Twitter at Dr. Luann. On Facebook, you can find Luann at Dr. Luann Brizendine, as well as on Instagram, Luann Brizendine. Come back and let's talk about more of this because we have 50 more years of health that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, we'll have to look at the body hacks. The body hacks in the mind chapter is great. And the, the, the neuroscience of self-care, which is chapter six, we'll have to talk about both of those because I want women to know that stuff. <laughs> yes, super, super important. Thank you, Luann. My pleasure. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back continuing the conversation about age, attitude, image, and our health. My next guest is Dr. Becca Levy. 
who received her Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard University and held a National Institute on Aging postdoctoral fellowship at the Division of Aging and Department of Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, credited with creating a field of study that focuses on how positive and negative age stereotypes can have beneficial and adverse effects, respectively, on the health of older individuals. Dr. Levy has given invited testimony before the United States Senate on the effects of ageism and contributed to briefs submitted to the United States Supreme Court in age discrimination cases. Dr. Levy, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. Well, I am very interested in this subject matter because as a woman of a certain age, and that exact number shall remain nameless, I have encountered some very interesting observations when I've gone for healthcare. The first being is people asking me, oh, you're ex years old, what medications are you taking? And I look at them in a very perplexed way, like, what do you mean? (laughs) Right. Yes. There are a lot of assumptions that come with being a certain age. And let's talk a little bit about that, that, that A, that if we're very young, we're in spectacular health and B, if we're in middle to older years, that we're not. Right. So there are a lot of Uh, assumptions and negative age beliefs um, that exist in our culture. And it's hard to avoid them. We know children as young as three have already encountered and taken in many of the age stereotypes or age beliefs of their culture. And we know that those can be reinforced over time. And unless we develop tools to become aware of how these age beliefs operate and can impact us. If we do take on the tools that allow us to overcome the age beliefs, then uh, we can actually have a dramatic improvement on um, how much they impact us. So what I think I'm hearing you say is that if we change the way that we view aging and our beliefs around aging, that it also impacts our own health? Yes. So that is the idea behind my new book that just came out last week, Breaking the Age Code. And the book examines how it's possible that these beliefs that exist in our culture can have a direct impact on our aging health and also the tools that we can take to change that process. And let's give a plug for the book one more time. The book is Breaking the Age Code, How Your Beliefs About Aging Determine How Long and Well you live. And I think this is a really important aspect to changing the story around what aging means and and, and what healthy aging is. There are a lot of uh, common false beliefs about aging, and I would love for you to share some of the the most common ones. Sure. Yes. Thank you for the shout out. Yes, of course. In the book, I actually present 14 of the most common negative age beliefs that exists in our culture. And I had fun in writing the book and investigating what the science is for each of those beliefs. And I found for each one that there is evidence that the negative belief is false in in different kinds of ways. And also that the science often shows that there's some strength associated with with aging. Uh, And just for an example of one of the perhaps most common negative age beliefs is that all types of cognition inevitably decline in later life. And we know from the science that that's just not true, that there's many different types of cognition. So some of them stay the same, like procedural memory or ability to remember how to ride a bike. 
And some of the types of cognition have been shown to actually improve in later life. So for example, there's some research that suggests that our ability to solve conflicts can improve in later life, our ability to engage in what's called metacognition or thinking about thinking tends to improve in later life. So there's many, many examples of, of improvement. And in addition, there are a number of older people who in own everyday activities defy some of the negative stereotypes. So for example, in writing the book, I really enjoyed interviewing this 84 year old man named John who took on the memory task of trying to memorize a 60,000 word poem. And, oh, wow. and he's, yeah, and he was <laughs> successful in doing it. And in part because he had his own positive age belief that he referred to. So he thought of this uh, cellist who played beautiful cello music in his 80s and 70s, 80s, 90s. And so he had this image of this wonderful performing older man. And that in turn inspired and motivated his own memory performance and this feat that he undertook. That's phenomenal. I heard a story the other day about a 103-year-old man who lives in an assisted living community. And every weekend he leaves to go spend the weekend with his girlfriend. So has all of his cognition and he's like, you know, why should I not go and travel and have, have the weekend away with my lady? And I thought that was fabulous. Yes, that does sound like a fabulous um, story or situation. Some, something that we should all aspire to. Yes. <laughs> to be 103 Definitely. and having weekend hookups. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that sounds great. What are some other stories you write about in your book, Breaking the Age Code? Something that I, I wrote about in the book is just the, the journey that I took and how it all began. And so um, I actually started this interest in the whole whole idea of looking to see whether there could be this impact of these cultural age beliefs um, when I was still in graduate school. And I had the opportunity to travel to Japan to study why it is that Japan has the longest lifespan in the world. And what I immediately noticed when I arrived was how differently older people are treated in Japan. So what I, I was used to seeing examples of ageism in the United States, but when I arrived in Tokyo, what I noticed was older people are really integrated into society and celebrated. So they treat centenarians and super centenarians like rock stars on television, and they have a, a national holiday in which they celebrate older people. So I became really interested in this question, is it possible that the cultural age beliefs actually have an impact on this longest survival, longest longevity? And so that sparked this interest that I investigated in studies when I got back to the United States. Um, and, and those are what sort of form the basis of the book that, I, that I'm describing. Well, it's interesting. Um, yesterday on the news, they announced that the third oldest living person on record I think her name was Kane Tanaka, died at the age of 119 in Japan. Imagine. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I actually, I was, yeah, really sad to hear that. And she's actually in the book. So actually in our longevity chapter, I had the opportunity to work with this wonderful Japanese um, college student and we investigated different super centenarians and some of the qualities that allowed them to be super centenarians or had this really long lifespan and, um, and we actually included her um, as one of our examples of some of an older person who actually also really embraced life and 
she was interviewed um, and asked, what do you think is the best time for somebody's life? If you think about your whole lifespan. And she said, now, now is the best time. <laughs> so she, she really embraced the current age that she was in and, and had, was very active and, and very well respected and celebrated in the culture. So I think there was this back and forth between her own age beliefs and then the cultural age beliefs. Well, it's interesting that you point out that she talks about the now because I, uh, I read an article about her yesterday as well, saying that she didn't dwell much in her past, right? That staying forward focused was very much a part of her routine. And I'm wondering if when you think about being very presently minded versus ruminating and living in memories, if as a result, she did not experience depression. Yeah, that's that's an interesting hypothesis. And I, yes, I mean, that, that could be. Um, but I also know that um, the quality of reviewing life uh, can also bring benefits. So that's actually, there's some research that suggests that that's another quality that can improve in later life is the ability to think about meaningful events in one's history and putting them together in a way that you know brings growth in one's current life. So there may be some some balance of, of those kinds of skills. But then, as you say, living in the moment and really appreciating one's current life, I'm sure is also very important. I think when you look at the sort of Western society's focus on, you know, exercise, health, well-being, following a, a, a good diet or healthy lifestyle, how do you think that impacts how we view aging? Do we dislike or we're fearful of aging or is there a, more of a, a theory that, you know, we're embracing aging in a different way than our, than our parents or our grandparents? Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. And that gets at kind of the, the back and forth between, you know, health behaviors and beliefs about aging. So we know from our research, we've looked at how um, age beliefs are related to health behaviors. And we have found that people who have more positive age beliefs are more likely to engage in preventive health behaviors like eat a healthier diet and exercise more and take prescribed medications at a higher rate. So there, it does seem to be a um, what is called sometimes an upstream factor. So it's actually something that if we can reinforce positive age beliefs, it can have this ripple effect going forward and have an impact on a number of mechanisms, including health behaviors and physiological markers, like um, having lower stress levels or lower cortisol levels is something we found in one study. So these huh. different mechanisms can then in turn have an impact on health outcomes going forward. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk with you about how social media and TV media affects negative age beliefs or impacts negative age beliefs to learn more about the work of Dr. Becca Levy and to pick up her book, Breaking the Age Code, How Your Beliefs About Aging Determine How Long and Well You Live. Please visit Becca Levy. Dot com and that's Becca B E C C A hyphen Levy L E V Y dot com. You can find her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Becca Levy PhD. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon 
IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back continuing the conversation with Becca Levy. We're talking about age, attitude, image, and our health. Let's get back to it. So, Becca, let's talk about the media, social media, TV media, billboards, and all these images of youth, beauty, the perfect body type. How does this impact or influence our age beliefs? Yes, that's a great question. So, we know that Structural ageism is unfortunately prevalent in our country, and in fact, something like 67% of older Americans have uh, have reported experiencing ageism in everyday life, and a source of that ageism comes from many different places, but certainly uh, social media and media can be a source, Uh, and actually in one study I conducted, um, so my I should back up and say my daughters uh, pointed out to me how they were noticing these negative messages about aging on their social media and pointed them out to me, these different terrible images. And I became really interested in trying to understand if that was a uh, widespread problem. And so I conducted a study looking at all publicly accessible Facebook groups that had something to do with older people that had a focus on, on older individuals. And what I found was, unfortunately, that most of the sites had negative portrayals of aging as part of what they were presenting. And not only that, but we found that 37% of them actually advocated banning older people from participating in different types of public activities, such as shopping and driving. So, yes, so there's some really, and there's also some some awful memes that were part of COVID and, you know, some pandemic against older people as well that are quite popular in social media. So yeah, I think social media could be a source of, of reinforcing relationships across generations and promoting positive age beliefs. But unfortunately, there are these examples of it spreading ageism. You know, I'm thinking about, there was a woman, a yoga teacher, and her name escapes me at the moment, but she had quite a, a prominent place in social media. She died recently. I think she was in her 90s and had been doing yoga for decades, like 70 years. And she was so graceful and so spirited and beautiful. And I thought, now that's a way to age. Mm, That sounds like, yeah, a great example of positive aging. Um, Let's talk about the age liberation movement and, and how you envision it, because I have not heard of this term before. And I'm very interested because I'm, I'm thinking of of, uh, buying a membership. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it would be great if you yeah, became a member. So it's, it's a, a movement that I think is on the verge of becoming a, a you know, widespread movement. Uh, and it would be a movement that is um, modeled on other successful movements of groups that have been marginalized and have tried to fight against discrimination in society. 
Uh, and the idea behind it is that um, individuals of different ages would work together to try to strengthen and promote human rights of people all, of all ages and also would fight ageism. And then the third piece would be that it would celebrate aging and, and value, find, um, reinforce the value of, of older members of a society and all that they can bring bring to the society. And I think there are signs that we're on the verge of it happening. So, um, for example, there is a World Health Organization campaign that was launched recently that has 194 countries that have joined, and the campaign is set up to combat ageism. Um, and so there are, there are these signs that as a society, as, as, you know, throughout the world, that people are getting angry about ageism and are trying to think about how to change it and overcome it and create a more age-just society. I love that, a more age-just society. And when we think about the aging process and the healthy aging process, and you mentioned in the, the first segment about wisdom, metacognition and wisdom, I think that that is one of the biggest things I can speak for myself as I've aged that I value about the aging process. I'm much less apt to get aggravated or aggressive as time has gone on, you know, because I have a better perspective of life. Do you find right. that? Or does your research <laughs> yield that? <laughs> yes, I think that is supported by many uh, many studies, many case, case examples of people who, with experience, have more to draw on to, to understand conflicts and how to resolve them. I mean, so not everybody, you know, I think has that growth, but many people do have that growth or have the ability to have that growth, which I think is, is important. Um, one of the things that I observe around me um, I mean, I do a lot of different kind of athletic sports as I'm now paying very close attention to people older than me who are still doing those activities. For example, skiing. I just came back from a, a spring skiing trip and I was so pleased to see people in their 80s, you know, with, with their knee braces. <laughs> and I'm one of them with the knee braces. But, you know, skiing and really enjoying themselves out on the mountain, that they were not going to be held back by a number. Yeah, that's a great example. And that actually fits in really well with one of the tools that I present in the book. So I actually presented about 14 evidence-based tools of how people can strengthen their positive age beliefs and uh, reduce their negative age beliefs. That is, hopefully we'll have an age liberation movement very soon, but until we have that, it's, it's great to think about the tools that will help us navigate in a society that often has ageism. And one of the tools that I present is something called um, re reinforcing or developing a portfolio of diverse positive images. And part of that process is to come up with, say, four or five older people that you have an admiration for and have a quality that you want to strengthen in yourself. And just an example that you're giving, that's a great example because I, having, you know, having an image of an older person who's a great skier, who's found ways to, to make that part of their life, you know, in a, in a meaningful way. I mean, that could be one of the, one of the people in that portfolio. Indeed. And in this case, I was observing, I think there were four men and a couple of women all in their 80s. They were European and they were talking about the snow and they all had, you know, different kinds of braces on their knees. And I'm like, right on. Like, right on. Yep. That's the way to go. 
That's great. Yes, that's a great example. So let's talk about genes, aging in our gene pool. How much do genetics really impact the healthy aging process? How much is nature? How much is nurture? Right. So that's a good question. So we know from longevity research that about 25% of longevity and healthy aging is determined by genes. So the other 75% is determined by uh, environmental or psychological factors. And so one of the ones that I've been focusing on that we can really have uh, control and is our age beliefs, the age beliefs of our culture that we encounter in all these different ways. This is phenomenal because I would have um, guessed a different percentage. So we really do have a lot of control in terms of how we choose to age and in that choice, how our health will respond to, to that attitude, to those choices. Exactly. I think that's something that I think is really important is that these beliefs are malleable, that we can when we become aware of them, that we can actually work on shifting them from these images of decline to images of thriving. And when there is a speed bump, when there is a health speed bump, how that impacts the recovery, the bounce back as well. Exactly. Yes. So we actually have a study in which we found that people who have who've been taking in more positive age beliefs from their culture, if they experience an acute event that leads to disability, if they've got positive age beliefs, they're significantly more likely to recover, to fully recover even from from that disability. So it seems like these positive age beliefs can act as a resource that people can draw on to motivate them and to inspire them as, as they recover. And if you were to offer any advice to our listeners or to your patients or the people that you research, what would you say to them to help ensure the best possible outcomes for a healthy aging process? Well, I think there are, so in the book I actually present, I developed this um, method that's called the ABC method, and it has three parts. The first is the A is to increase our awareness of these messages that we encounter in different places we talked about. Uh, including social media. Um, The B is to think about the cause or the blame of problems that we encounter. So to really think about, could it be, is it aging or could there actually be other factors as well that might be contributing, including ageism or societal factors? And then the the C stands for challenge. And that can involve challenging these negative beliefs about aging that we encounter but also on a societal level, working towards this age liberation movement or something on a societal level that could actually reduce or eliminate ageism. I love it. And then plus, like move your body, have some good friends, eat healthy, (laughs) bring some fresh air. (laughs) All great. Yes, I I agree. You know, sort of the basic, basic lifestyle management. I think, you know, so many people when they age, tend to take to the physician's prescription pad rather than the lifestyle roadmap. Right. Yes, I agree that those are important pieces to think about. Well, this has been great. So 
Dr. Becca Levy, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for sharing your research uh, from the book, Breaking the Age Code, How Your Beliefs About Aging Determine How Long and Well You Live. To learn more about Dr. Becca Levy, please visit BeccaLevy.com. And there's a hyphen between Becca and Levy. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you can find her at Becca Levy. PhD. Thanks again. I really appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom with us, Dr. Levy. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. I really enjoyed hearing your wisdom as well. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Luann Brizendine and Dr. Becca Levy, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.